trust in financial services has been increasing. But with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now. This is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Plaid gains a valuation of $13.4 billion after a Series D raise. Coinbase record Q1 profits ahead of a highly anticipated IPO. And Revolut want to crack America and also launch a glow-in-the-dark debit card. All this on today's show and much more. Welcome to episode 518 of Fintech Insider. I'm Mel Stringer, product lead at 11FS, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host today, 11FS delivery lead, Adam Davis. How are you doing, Adam? Oh, hello, Mel. How are you doing? Hello, I'm well. Roles have been reversed. Roles have been reversed. Hey, listen, you've you've started off well. It's a a great start, (laughs) solid start. Good, 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 good. (laughs) And of course, we're not alone. We're joined, albeit remotely, by some amazing guests. So firstly, making a welcome return, we've got Emily Nicole, FinTech correspondent at Financial News. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. It's a lovely cold April, as everybody wants it to be. So it is. happy to be here. Yeah, sunny, frosty, cold, perfect weather for the podcast. And we also have uh, Keith Grace, Head of Europe at Plaid. Welcome back to the show, Keith. It's great to see you back. How are you doing? I'm doing great and excited to be here. Thanks, Melissa and Adam, for having me. Yeah, it's a huge week for Plaid. So the first story that we have is Plaid raises $425 in a Series D funding round of a global financial data network. So the first story was over on Financial Times, um, but obviously it's, uh, it's huge news, it's everywhere. Investors valued Plaid at $13.4 billion following a $425 million cash injection. This latest round will give Plaid the resources to expand across Europe, partner across ecosystem to make digital payments as seamless as possible, help enterprise and tech companies create new fintech experiences, and serves as the global connection to help European companies expand into the US and vice versa. Over the past year, more tech companies are moving into finance and fintech companies are rapidly looking to expand their offerings globally. Plaid plans to use this money to scale the company's global platform to support the massive growth in fintech and enable the next generation of digital financial services. So, Keith, let's come to you first on this. Firstly, congratulations on the round. Really exciting. Can you tell us more about this and what it enables you to do? Yeah, thanks, Melissa. It's, it's uh, exciting times, but mostly looking forward to just putting this to work and growing the fintech ecosystem. I guess if you think back on this year and like, I can't believe we're still doing things like these podcasts remotely, but 2020 was a year with huge growth in digital adoption. I think what that really showed is that global fintech is at this inflection point. And Plaid is one of the infrastructure players behind that, similarly is at an inflection point. And so for us, this raise is about following through on our strategy to become a global platform to enable fintech to grow across borders seamlessly and easily, and really bringing that across continental Europe and making sure we're the bridge between North America, the UK and Europe. So 
that's what we're focused on and what we're excited to do here with this. Yeah, so I mean, I think we had a lot of news earlier in the year around a potential acquisition by um, Visa. And now obviously you guys are, you know, doing this uh, the fundraising independently, which is really positive. And I saw actually in the news that you've got two new significant investors, Silver Lake Partners and Ribbit Capital. So just wondering what a difference they will make, given that you guys are, are planning to sort of uh, grow the ecosystem, if they'll be advising, helping in other ways other than just, you know, dutifully investing their, their cash. No, I think we brought in some great investors. And actually, this round was led by Brad and Altimeter Capital with, with Ribbit and Silver Lake join us as well. I think for those folks who are in the sort of fintech ecosystem, you'll recognize those names. I mean, Ribbit is a fantastic investor, Altimeter as well for late stage growth. So we're really excited for their help and advice as we continue to grow and scale and very much excited to have them on board with the team here and with Plaid in terms of our, our next stage of growth. And yeah, I mean, it's certainly been a pretty wild start to 2021 for us with uh, you know a breakup to start the year and then obviously this news as well. And in some ways, I, like I don't know if I, would frame it this way, but it, it felt like the DOJ sort of wrote our investor deck for us in some ways. And so now we're we're out and ready to uh, to continue to, to grow across Europe after this. I think, well, definitely, I think in some ways they kind of did you guys a, a favor and uh, going and being independent is really, really uh, attractive for investors too. There was one thing in this, uh, this description of the story that I wanted to ask you about, and that's, uh, can you tell us more what you mean by global financial data network? Yeah, if you think about it, anytime a, a FinTech or even a regular financial institution wants to grow, they have to solve all these problems. How do I onboard more users? How do I bring the same experience that I have in one market into a new market? All of this relies on connections to banks and financial data and financial onboarding experiences. And what we're doing is abstracting away all that complexity of geographical expansion into a single API that then our customers and fintechs can build on and use to expand. And we've seen a lot of success with that already, having helped most of the large neobanks expand from the UK into the US. And so I think for us, that's what we're focused on is bringing the best tools to play here in terms of being that global network. So that is really easy for fintechs to expand. We're in a digital world now. And so bridging that gap between geographical borders and the borderless digital world is something that we're really focused on making easy. Yeah. And in terms of specifically what you're enabling for different, I guess, companies or other fintechs, uh, partners across that uh, ecosystem, what exactly is the next generation of fintech going to be like and how can Plaid help? Yeah, I think this is a great example. If you think about every region or country has different payment rails, we can abstract that away to have the same experience so that it's easy for you as a user, whether you're in France or the UK or Canada or California, to actually see your finances, move your money however you want to and have that transfer happen instantly, seamlessly, and all your transactions be categorized in the same way regardless of currency. So a lot of those enable some of the great experiences that you see fintechs bring into market. And so we're excited to provide some of those tools. Amazing, very exciting. Emily, I'm gonna jump to you next and ask you about what you thought about this story and Plaid and this ecosystem play and specifically around enabling a really easy framework for other fintechs around the world. Yeah, I mean, to come to the first point on that, what I thought when I saw the news, I, I don't think anybody was surprised really that Plaid was going to raise after the visa deal went bust just because 
what I wrote about it at the time when when the merger was cancelled was Plaid's becoming a born again startup, and I noticed that a lot of the staff were really happy about it. And I even chatted to Keith back then on his reaction. We had a really great talk, and I think that basically this is seen as an opportunity, right? Plaid now has the opportunity to grow the way it wants. Keith said something great at the time about having now having control of its own destiny. And the raise is part of that. They're now getting the capital to be able to finance that journey towards whatever they want Plaid to be. And then on the point about enabling the next generation of fintech, where Plaid sits is in that open banking sphere, which in the UK in particular is great. But it's also open banking is growing across the world, particularly, you know, you see in, in Australia as well. And they really want to bring that to North America and use that experience and that really increasing growth in Europe to help bridge that gap over to the US. And because it sits right there, that'll help it to kind of bring a lot of other fintech companies with it. Open banking is all about bringing everybody together and using that data to everyone's advantage, right? So that's what Pad's probably going to be, at least in my, in my opinion. I'm speaking for the company here. You're doing it. You did a great job, Emily. <laughs> yeah, you're you going to sign me up as a spokesperson, right. I hope. Right. The money on the side. <laughs> so to Emily's point, Keith, uh, what about open finance as well? I think um, not only open banking, but open finance, potentially clouds could be the sort of door opener for enabling open finance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, what we're trying to do is, is be able to provide consistent experiences for users and the businesses that are building for users, regardless of where they are. So actually in the US today, we already support a lot of open finance use cases. You can switch your direct deposit, you can view your investment accounts, your retirement accounts, get a holistic view of your, your health and verify your income and employment, all of that. We're really excited to help bring those into Europe and work with policymakers here in the UK and Europe to make sure that open banking extends from a regulatory perspective into open finance here. And certainly part of this financing, part of this growth round is about bringing those experiences here as well. So I think What's clear is that fintech and digital fintech is now mainstream. And a lot of that means a lot of these use cases and a lot of these this competition for traditional institutions is going to continue. And you're starting to see more and more traditional institutions wake up and realize, hey, fintech's here and they're real and they're providing better experiences than we are for our users. Uh, and we're excited to help build those experiences and make sure that we're a platform that can help provide the growth of the fintech ecosystem overall, because I think it really is a, a rising tide raises all ships type of scenario that we're witnessing right here. Adam, I wanted to ask you about infrastructure software providers and helping companies manage their data. I mean, it's a huge area of interest for investors um, and we've seen some really exciting things happening in this space. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think for me, if you're starting a proposition now, especially if it's B to C, B to S and B, and you have to almost, you know, consider open banking, the, the technology that underpins the sharing and accessibility of data for consumers. You have to consider that as, you know, one of the core technologies or whatever product you're building. So I think it's, you know, it's it's almost as, in, you know, now when we're certainly advising clients, we're making it as important as who your core banking provider is, you know, who's their partner from an open banking perspective. You know, it's it's as important as, you know, choosing a language of the front end. It's, it's a core part of the stack. And I think, you know, the, the room to grow is obvious. You know, Plaid's just been valued at what 13.4 billion, and as Key said, and, and Emily touched on, and we've touched on 
you know, countless times on podcasts that we've done recently, you know, open banking in theory is in its infancy, open finance as a, I suppose, as a regulation or a secondary piece of legislation as it might now become following the FCA's uh, call for feedback the other day. It's in its infancy. So, you know, there's so much room to grow and you're talking about a 13.4 billion pound valuation off the back of that. You know, open banking in Brazil's just started this year and only started really in February. And that's got, got about four different phases to it until it actually matures towards the end of the year. So an amazing opportunity. And you've seen today, uh, True Layer raised again. They, I think, they just did a Series D at about seventy million. Again, like they've sort of now actually doubled down on the payments infrastructure and how actually payments will change, and that's where they see the biggest, you know, exponential growth on their business model, which makes sense because again, it's an immature way of making payments right now. But you know, you can see in five, ten years. You know, the you know, merchants will adopt it because it makes sense. Consumers, if they can make the the customer journeys work, will adopt it because it's quicker, it's less complicated, it's less clunky. So the use case, the end user experiences are based on this infrastructure going in place, and this infrastructure is going to grow. And you know, I said it for years. I think you know, the plaids, the Trulairs, and others are going to become you know what the FISERVs and the FISs are at the moment, which are you know absolutely integral core parts of huge, huge banking stacks. Yeah, totally agree. And of course, they're less in inhibited by geography as well. So the potential to, to grow across markets is massive as well. Right, so we have to move on to the next story now. And story number two is around Coinbase. So Coinbase posts a record of $1.8 billion in revenue as crypto markets shoot past $2 trillion. So it's huge. Okay, so this story is over on Forbes and um, ahead of its long anticipated public market debut next week, crypto brokerage Coinbase's results show the best quarter ever, pulling in 1.8 billion in first quarter revenue. That first quarter revenue grew nearly 900% from the same period last year and more than doubled the $585 million they made in Q4 of 2020. They also pulled in an estimated 800 million in earnings during the first quarter, roughly 25 times the 32 million posted a year ago. Reflecting the surging interest in cryptocurrencies, Coinbase's trading volume totaled $335 billion in the quarter, eclipsing the 30 billion worth of trades in the first quarter of 2020. Meanwhile, the platform's verified users swelled to 56 million at the quarter's end compared to 34 million in the previous year. So there's a lot of numbers there and they're all massive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, wow. Adam, I'm going to come to you first. What like what are your thoughts? Are these numbers surprising? Well, I mean, I'm not sure what time this all the news came out. My my Twitter blew up and I remember I think I was half asleep. I think I was dozing on the couch. It was late at night and being the the, the good millennial I was, I've got my iWatch on and my iWatch just started beeping and like vibrating. It just wouldn't stop. I think the notifications people were just like on this news, as soon as it came out, they're like, my God, look at these numbers. And anyone who's anyone who's like loosely affiliated with, you know, the crypto scene or um, obviously, you know, who's interested in the stock market and whatever else was commenting on it. Uh, the numbers are just enormous. Don't think there's any surprise in that. You know, you're talking about the biggest, you know, crypto exchange in the world. And you're talking about an organization that, 
you know, has been around now for five years and generally from a security perspective has been really solid. And I think that's what's that's what attracted a lot of people initially, certainly what attracted me to Coinbase and a lot of people initially who wanted to invest in crypto was the ease that you could do it. Uh, although at the beginning it was, you know, a bit back and forth in terms of onboarding. But, you know, now it's so seamless and the security record is relatively impeccable, especially if you look at um, other exchanges who have been up and down like yo-yos. So, you know, they've worked really, really hard at focusing on the most important parts, which is just the experience, making it super clean, super simple, but really, really, you know, security conscious, really, really sort of safety first. Everything about the validity and the, and the authentication, all that sort of stuff has really been uh, doubled down on. And I think that's reflected in the fact that there's such just an amazing, unbelievable and almost overwhelming interest in the, in, in the direct listing. And interesting, they've gone for a direct listing because that's literally the point. You know, this company is so big, it can literally just do it on its own terms. It doesn't need a bank. It doesn't need a middleman. You know, this is going to be arguably one of the biggest placings. I mean, what are they talking about? 100 billion? They're talking, I think, from a from a, a market valuation, but it's just absolutely enormous. You've got some way to go, Keith. That's right. Man. That's right. <laughs> You're dwarfed. <laughs> but it's uh, it's just massive, just massive. Yeah, it's interesting about like I think it's the first of its uh, kind for a you know major cryptocurrency company doing this direct listing with uh, Nasdaq. So that's due for the 14th of April. It's next week. Yeah, next week. Yeah, next yeah. week. Yeah. So. Um, or this week. Or, Yes, you're right. This week now. Yeah, when this comes out, it'll be this week. So Keith, what are, what are your thoughts, um, especially around this IPO? It's pretty massive, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, again, I'd echo Adam. I'm, I'm not surprised. I think this has been a bumper quarter for the crypto market generally, and Coinbase is, is that mature player. I think you have to give hats off to them for executing well on user experience and security, as, as Adam noted. And I think what's interesting here is, to me, does this mark the beginning of sort of wider cultural shift around crypto? That will be interesting to track over time. I mean, you're seeing, again, almost a double doubling in users, which I find really interesting in that you're starting to see more and more people be interested in this. I think the other thing that's underlying this uh, as a in terms of stats that I think is worth taking into account, too, is part of what drove these results is seeing institutional interest in this as well. Like, you know, Coinbase helped Square do their purchase of, of crypto as well. So I think there is sort of an interesting shift going on. I think obviously there's there's going to be bull and bear markets and, and they're going public at the right time. It's sort of a, a, a big uprise in the whole crypto market overall. And you can't expect that to last forever. But it is interesting that you're seeing this over time, continued increase, continued adoption here. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see more results like this from other exchanges in the future. Yeah, and Emily, I just wanted to come to you and see what your thoughts are on this, especially with respect to the uh, the increase, massive increase in users and the fact that they're so profitable already before the IPO. I'm imagining that the growth in the users, a number of users, is due to the pandemic. Do you think that that is a similar aspect of growth across all kind of crypto companies? Yeah, I mean, I think Keith was right. It's really the institutional investors that have powered this last rally and in getting involved in crypto and Bitcoin in, in big ways. But that only serves to increase retail investor adoption, right? That's why user numbers are getting involved so heavily. Not only do they have more money to put aside and see Bitcoin as a bit of a nest egg because of the pandemic, but they also have this option of seeing um, companies like Coinbase now go public. And actually, what I think is going to be really interesting is in a few months' time, Coinbase's IPO is going to be one of the first examples we have of a way of investing in cryptocurrencies without actually having to hold Bitcoin or Ether or anything else. And 
I think a lot of investors will look at it and think maybe that's one way that I can get involved in the exposure to cryptocurrencies without actually having to be hit by that price volatility. And I think it'll, it'll go one way or the other, right? We'll either start to see the cryptocurrency prices themselves go down a bit because people will be piling into companies like Coinbase or products that are going to come out eventually, like ETFs, over the cryptocurrencies themselves. Um, or maybe that volatility will just kind of meter out a bit and it'll become a bit more of a, hopefully still exciting, but normal in, in quoted figures, um, asset class. So I think that's one part that's really interesting about all of this. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating point, actually, that you make around being able to invest in crypto more broadly without necessarily having to take on all of the risk and the short term uh, massive fluctuations that we that we see. Adam, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been some news uh, this week around there's some filings about potentially creating the first, I think, crypto ETF or, you know, sort of the, the first fund that, that you could buy into. But it, it doesn't exist at the moment. And the only, you know, I know that there's been a fair few sort of smaller companies that help you mine for Bitcoins or um, mine for crypto, etc., who have done unbelievably well. But their success really on the markets has been pegged to, you know, the price of Bitcoin or pegged to the price of Ether, which have, which have obviously risen exponentially. And I think um, what would be interesting is, you know, I think it's sort of a it's a nice way to de-risk, if you like, any investment that you make in crypto, especially if Coinbase actually starts looking at evolving what they do away from just you know cryptocurrency, but moving actually the other way to what let's say the Robin Hoods and the neo banks are trying to do. They're trying to get into crypto, and what Coinbase might do is actually evolve their you know evolve their product to to serve you know the wider markets, etc. I mean they've they've now got you know a consumer base which is just absolutely massive and incredibly active. So 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 they could do that, and of course if they did do that, then it's you're almost further de-risking your investment into crypto because there is going to always going to be an element of Coinbase as it stands at the moment, which is pegged to you know the success and, and the increase in, in, in prices of cryptocurrency. But but the wider they go and the uh, and and the more I suppose de-risk it is, the more potentially attractive even more it becomes for retail investors. Keith, final comments from you. I found what Adam was saying really interesting about the ecosystem play and them assisting other companies within this market? Um, do you think that they might try to democratize some of their platform and technologies and do the um, the B2B play? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I can't speak for them. I, I have no idea whether that's on their roadmap, but I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. I think the other thing that this is driving is adding crypto as a functionality or an asset class into lots of other fintech apps. I think there's no secret that has been great success for Square Cash, for Coinbase, for others. So Revolut, Robinhood. So I do think that there's a lot of interest in making sure that you can add this. And yeah. I think in a reverse sense, I wouldn't be surprised to see the large exchanges looking to grow their product portfolio as well. I think the other thing that's worth noting here is that there's some interesting macro dynamics where you had all of these consumers sequestered at home during this period, growing their savings because there were financial hits and financial fear, and then investing that. And I think that drove you know huge interest in uh, just investing generally. And I think you saw that flow into crypto as well over Q1. So I think there is some some macro tailwinds that were behind this as well. Absolutely. Buy and hold for a lot of people has become um, the norm, but in, in crypto especially. Um, I did find it interesting, some comments around the uh, economics of this platform. So they charge a half a percent uh, entry fee and then a half a percent, I think, on the sell side as well. So if you hold your, your your value there, it doesn't really cost you anything. But as soon as you try to do anything with it or take take your funds out of the platform, they charge you. I wonder if they'll have to 
evolve that thinking as they start to work or as we're hypothesizing that they'll start to work with other players in the in the market. So we're just going to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. Okay, so the next story is Revolut to launch major US blitz as it targets a million users this year. So this story is over on Finextra. Emily, I think it was you that reported on this, so we'll come to you first. But Revolut is aiming to reach a million users in the US by the end of the year as it prepares to revive its US growth plans. It had originally plans to market the fintech brand in March this year in connection with the app's debut in the country. But the pandemic forced the startup to delay the campaign. The new strategy, which will begin in three months, will feature a pretty aggressive marketing campaign in uh, quotes there, launched nationally to promote the startup's free foreign exchange and peer-to-peer banking services compared to its rivals. Meanwhile, in the UK market, Revolut has launched a glow-in-the-dark debit card in partnership with two-time world heavyweight boxing champion Anthony Joshua as part of a program to raise funds for independent boxing gyms across the UK. Very cool. For every limited edition Anthony Joshua card ordered, Revolut will donate £1 to support federated boxing clubs in England and Scotland with a minimum of £50,000 in funding set aside for the project. The card, which is branded with Anthony Joshua's motto, 258, is black and white during the daylight and transforms to a luminous green and black in the dark. So, Emily, the US expansion push was your exclusive. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I had a chat with the US chief executive of Revolut not that long ago, Ron Oliveira, because we were talking about uh, Revolut's recent application for a banking license in the US. They just filed the draft application for a bank charter in California. And as we were talking about that, he mentioned a lot of things about what Revolut intends to do in the country, first of which is that they hope that they're going to reach a million users by the end of this year which I think is probably a a good target to get to if you consider the size of the US. I think if you consider that Revolut has 15 million users worldwide right now, one million doesn't sound like a whole lot, but the US has been a a notoriously tough market to crack for UK fintech banks so far. So we'll see if they get there. And then the other thing he mentioned that I thought was really interesting was about their marketing campaign, right? Because Revolut first launched for users in the US in March last year, But then at the same time, the pandemic hit and they kind of had this question on their hands of of whether they should just continue to go at the market the way Revolut always does, which is all guns blazing, um, no pun intended for the US users, and, uh, you know, like see how they do in the country, billboards, sponsors, ad deals, all of this stuff. But in the end, they decided to take a step back and they spent a whole year just thinking about engineering and and trying to basically plan for what they're going to do this year, which is what they're going to do now. They're going to really hit the market hard and see where it gets them. But we've seen both Revolut and Monzo in the country for a while now. and, And I don't know how the adoption has been, but I don't think it's been staggering. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So do you think one of the challenges is um, making noise, but also making sure that your product is really solid, works and is uh, attractive to the local audience? Do you think that's what they're spending their money on, sort of this research piece and making sure it's really technically robust? Yeah, I think hopefully. I think that's probably like a rare advantage that most startups don't get is the ability to take a year to really figure it out before you go in. And Revolut is known for being a standout startup that will just go at things with major hype and push, push, push until success happens. And so this was probably something that they never expected to do. And I bet it was probably a bit out of the comfort zone for them to spend a year that way. But that just means they're probably, you know, really excited to get going with it now. Keith, I'll come to you next. What do you think about this story? And do you think that Revolut have got a product market fit in the US currently, or do you think there's still a ways to go? I mean, I think I've continued to be impressed by the feature rollout and speed of Revolut as, as a user here in the UK. And so I think if they continue to execute like that in the US, they'll be, they'll be on a good path. I think the key and what they've probably spent this past year focusing on is you have to get your product up to the right level before you turn on the marketing dollars and really try and do a, a user acquisition push because for a market the size of the US, what you really are going for is to try and go viral and get that really low cost customer acquisition funnel going. And so I think hopefully they have the product at a place where they're ready to, to turn that funnel on and see if they can get going there. It's also interesting thinking on the sort of second half of this story with the cards. I'm always surprised by the focus on launching flashy cards here in the UK where you you don't need cards. You can just take your phone and pay with your phone everywhere. The US is the opposite actually though, where I could see, you know, focus on having a flashy card being a real thing because mobile payments are not as as mature there. You still have to pay with a card in a lot of restaurants, bars, anywhere you go. And so I'll be interested to see whether they take this sort of glow in the dark strategy and try and take that to the US as well, because I, I haven't seen that in the US before. Yeah, agreed. I can really see your point as well about the flashy cards. I think it's the same in uh, in Brazil as well and other markets where visual importance is, uh, you know, is a priority as well for, for the marketing piece. Adam, what are your thoughts on this? I'm keen to know what you think about the partnership with Anthony Joshua as well. <laughs> I think that the uptake of their services so far emphasizes how important it is to hold that federal license and to be able to go across you know, the, the, the 50 states. At the moment, they piggyback, as a, as a lot of uh, startups do in the US, on a local bank. I think it's the Metropolitan Bank. Um, and I think the what, what you can therefore offer to your you know, your consumer set, especially on the B2C side, is is massively restricted. Of course, in the UK, they're going for a license here, but they still operate, or they don't now, but they were operating under the Lithuanian license, which they do obviously in Europe. In order to get that license, it takes a long time. Like you're talking like a two, three year potentially process. I don't know. It's possibly where they've spent quite a lot of the last sort of 10 months because, and it, and we know again, we've covered it, but Varo spent about 300 million doing that. I think Brex has just said that they're going to do uh, go for the license. There are some fintechs now uh, following Varo's footsteps if you like and uh, you know the process is understood but it's still very very costly to do but the riches are there like there's no doubt about it just the level of interchange you know the the, the need for credit across the US is you know especially on a a, a B to SMB level as well is, is absolutely massive but I do think it will be a long process and you know 
just because something works on the East Coast, it doesn't necessarily mean it works on the West Coast. There's a lot of geographic differences in the way that consumers respond, especially to banking products, which are things that we've learned as we've rolled out propositions in the States over the last couple of years. In terms of the Anthony Joshua, I mean, look, he, that man's going to be in the news all year. You know, he's got he's got a couple of fights coming up with Tyson Fury. I just got pinged by Sky Sports that he's doing something else for charity. I don't know. He's in the news all the time at the moment, and it's going to continue to be like that until he fight. You know, he's got the biggest fight, arguably, of the last, you know, five, six years coming up, probably at the end of this year. So uh, if there was ever a time to, you know, hedge your bets and bet on Anthony Joshua, and now's probably, now's probably the time. The go-in-the-dark element, I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen all sorts of cards, right? You know, we we get we get a fair few because of polls. Maybe we get a fair few put before our eyes at 11FS. Never seen a glow-in-the-dark one, but it's, it's all good. The Monzo <laughs> one is always glow-in-the-dark. I mean, but I mean, I'm, I'm expecting this to like light up though. Like, I'm expecting, I'm not expecting this to be. Yeah, you can kind of see it in the dark. I'm expecting like if you pull this out, you can see it from like 50 feet away. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've got to say as well. When when I saw the Anthony Joshua thing, I was a bit like slightly unsurprised and, and not in a good way because I think Revolut's brand image, at least in the UK, has always been one for the tech bros. And doing something with Anthony Joshua that's sports related and then having the charity focus be on supporting boxing clubs, which I mean, great. All of the sporting and leisure sector has had a really bad year. So obviously they all need help. But if we're thinking about, you know, what are the major causes that you would probably be thinking about donating money to right now? I don't know if boxing clubs would be high up on my list. So I'm not too sure about, you know, whether or not this is like the, the best placed or the, the top priority that Revolut could have considered if they were going to do a charitable card. Yeah, you know, when you get a sponsor like Anthony Joshua, what do you do? It's quite it's quite random, <laughs> but then I remember Anthony Joshua he's also done a deal with Lynx. Uh, again, like that's really random. So I don't know, maybe that's his, <laughs> that's his strategy. I think also like Zinja or uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Zinja or Ninja actually, but I think that they actually launched a glow in the dark card a couple of years back. So in Oz, yeah, yeah. So maybe this yeah. isn't so revolutionary after all, but yeah, still I guess visually probably quite exciting, nevertheless. I did think that their offer with the the gyms donating a pound for every card purchase, and then I think there's something around the gyms who receive the most also get an extra 10K or something. It's quite lowball, really. They could be way more generous. I mean, Anthony Joshua's probably got quite deep pockets, and we definitely know that Revolut has, so they could definitely be, for sure, they could be more generous. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that, you know, there's the NHS. They always need money, and if we're in the middle of a pandemic still, and then there's vaccines and carers and all the rest, and no boxing gloves are where we're going now so <laughs> I'm, I'm with i am with keith though i think you know at the point where revolut works with apple so when you pay on your revolut card the card on file that you've got that that picture of that card glows in the dark on your iphone now that that's differentiated yeah. you should get them on the phone adam and tell them that that sounds good to me yeah i know you've got to convince apple to do that i can't see it happening but no i don't think so i, I do think i do think going, going back to the the license thing i think that's more the most interesting part about this whole story though because there really have not been that many fintechs that have gotten a bank license in the u.s it's very hard there's been a push to make it easier now and i think revolut applying for this one shows they're serious and two if they do get it I think it really changes the economics for their business longer term, right? Because then you don't have that cost base of a sponsor bank underneath you. And so I think that's the more interesting thing. It's certainly going to be a long journey for them. But I think if they can be successful there, I think it will bode well for them and their product execution in the U.S. 
Yeah, Ron, the US CEO, told me, you know, one to three years is is their ballpark, but they've been talking to regulators for at least a year already informally before the application happens. So oh, okay. They're trying to make it go as soon as possible, but yeah, probably about three years is where we're looking. Yeah, yeah I think the aim as well for the million customers is quite ambitious, even even with them throwing a lot of marketing at this. N26 did something quite similar in 2019 in New York. But to your point, Adam, about the east side, west side, um, I suppose it, things aren't necessarily the same. Uh, <laughs> Taking it back to the 1990s there, I like it. <laughs> now, I will say, the, the, the only thing I will just comment on on this one, the more customers they put on their books now, the more cards they issue in the States, the more complexity they're actually adding in at the point where they can go alone and get off of their support bank. They're going to have to reissue all of those, I'm assuming. I mean, they may not, but I'm assuming they'll have a new issuer and they'll have a whole new technology stat, which means you have to go through the process of reissuing those cards. So, you know, there's actually a point that says before you've even achieved that license, how big is actually too big before, you know, you've then got a period of X amount of months where you've got to transfer people over and it's clunky and customers might, you know, react negatively to it, et cetera. So lots of things to consider through through that three-year journey and, and beyond. Great. So we've got to move on to the next story now. Could talk about uh, could talk about that one all day. So the next story is Brazilian central bank gives green lights to WhatsApp payments as Facebook US tests P2P payments. So that is quite a mouthful, but quite exciting nevertheless. So this story is over on TechCrunch and uh, WhatsApp will now be allowed to let users send and receive payments in Brazil after receiving approval from the country's central bank using Visa and MasterCard networks. In June, WhatsApp was deemed by the central bank to be damaging to Brazil's existing payment system for completion, efficiency, and data privacy. It also had not obtained the right licenses at the time. The company has now gained approval after the central bank launched its own instant payment system, PIX, P-I-X, in November. For now, WhatsApp is only allowed to do peer-to-peer payments. Merchants at the moment can't be involved. Also this week in the US, WhatsApp's parent company, Facebook, confirms it's testing a new QR code feature and payment links for the use of Facebook Pay to make it easier for people in the US to send or request money from one another. So I think the uh, the, the QR code, it's like Re- Revenge of the Sith or uh, <laughs> something. It used to be so uncool and now QR codes are everywhere. Keith, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I guess, first of all, it's nice to see an article about Brazil that's not about COVID and has a, po- a positive tinge to it. So I, totally. I think that's encouraging. This to me is, is a perfect example of every company is becoming a fintech company. I mean, I think you're just anywhere there's a giant user base and there's no bigger user base than WhatsApp, you're going to start to see financial services be brought into that. So I don't think this is surprising. I think Brazil is a really interesting and suitable market to bring this to first. And I agree with you on the QR code thing. I mean, that's something that we've built for open banking payments as Plaid in the UK as well. I think it is having a resurgence in large Western markets, while it's always been popular with the Alipays of the world, for example. And part of the reason for that now is that it's built into the camera app of any phone, whether it's Android, iOS, whatever. And so I think it's another example of infrastructure slowly creepily developing. And then all of a sudden you can enable these entirely new payment methods. So it is interesting. I'll be interested to see the success or failure of the QR code over time, whether that can actually gain adoption in a post-COVID world. But I do think that WhatsApp payments in Brazil, given the popularity of the app there, I think will certainly be successful. Yeah, I hope so. I think that the Brazilian 
central bank and ge just generally the landscape is quite complex and there's lots of uh, things to sort of wrestle with. Um, Adam, what, what were your thoughts on this? What do you think the restricting factors might be to WhatsApp's rollouts? I mean, this has been going on for a while, whether or not WhatsApp could, could launch payments in, in Brazil specifically. And I think the reaction from the central bank was, oh my God, you know, if we let this happen, we're completely out of control of a massive, or potentially a massive payment rail in our country and we've got totally no control over it and it's, you know, a, a US owned company and, you know, we need to actually insert ourselves in this process. And they've got Visa and MasterCard, obviously, who will work, you know, who will probably be very, very open to working, obviously, with central regulators because that's, you know, from a Visa and MasterCard perspective, they need to be close to regulation because they also, you know, opine on it quite quite significantly. So, you know, I, I think that the intervening, I think it was last June, I think you mentioned, so the intervening, what, 10 months or so since then seems like it's been, you know, the central bank probably probably figuring out where it should play and then sort of dictating orders to WhatsApp, to Visa, to MasterCard to make sure that this runs in a way where they, they're going to continue to have oversight and control on it. It'll be interesting to see if that model gets rolled out you know, in other countries. Forgive me, I might be wrong on this, but I think the only other country that this has been rolled out in is India. I don't know whether there's others as well. And by, by all accounts, it hasn't gone unbelievably well. Uh, I mean, it has gone well if you look at the numbers, but compared to the amount of consumers and businesses that use WhatsApp, it's 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 still quite low adoption for a country the size of India and, and for the usage of WhatsApp that, that there is. And, and I think that's, you know, regardless whether you do it in India or whether you do it in Brazil or, or other countries that uh, WhatsApp and, uh, looks to do this in, it's all about the use cases. So it's all about actually, you know, why would people pay on WhatsApp. And I, you know, I still can't make that connection in my mind. I don't know why there's just the, the killer use case. It's a communicative app. I certainly use it as such. I don't at the moment ask for money on WhatsApp just by, you know, by as a natural consequence of the conversations that I'm having. Now, the SMB business might be a little bit different to that. And that might be really, really interesting. And, and they might double down on that sector. But I still... I don't know, maybe geographic locations, differences might be, you know, might make this so, but I, I still can't see the killer use case for it. Mm, I think maybe they're trying to emulate like a WeChat type vibes in Brazil because there was historically quite um, a large uh, unbanked or underbanked population in Brazil. I mean, things are changing now, but actually wanted to get your thoughts on this, Emily, what you think. I mean, I think WhatsApp payments could sort of democratise payments generally make it easier for people to pay their bills and so forth. It could make it easier for people to just uh, make payments and the whole informal gig economy as well, it could be quite useful for, for that type of employment. Yeah, definitely for that. I mean, we've, Brazil is actually really popular for gig economy. We have, they have quite a few big fintech companies out there that, that do all of that stuff. So maybe even the QR codes will really help with that. But personally, I mean, I've never paid for anything with a QR code, I don't think. It's really not something that I see a lot in the UK anyway. And so I do wonder whether that part of it will really take off in terms of their offering. And also just given the, the regulatory scrutiny that they just had, even though they've now come out the other side, I don't think it's going to be plain sailing in any way. What's the difference? Yeah, I mean, they're now going to have WhatsApp pay and Facebook pay. Facebook pay in the US, WhatsApp pay Brazil and India. But it, it is the strategy to... I'm asking you guys, you probably don't know this, but is the strategy to, to merge the two or like have two competing products side by side? It's kind of a, it's a weird ecosystem vibe. It is weird. And I think the economy of it is really weird as well, because I guess I'm surprised that they're trying to use Visa and MasterCard rails to deliver this when there is this sort of PIX system within Brazil already. And I think it was on another podcast that we were chatting about this, but 
the PICS system is really disruptive because it sort of erodes the interchange that uh, organizations can earn money from. So the interchange in Brazil is usually really high on any kind of cards and transaction, particularly credit cards. And the majority of people have got a credit card and relative to other nations, they've got a huge proportion of their sort of household debt held on these uh, the cards with revolving credit. So I don't actually know what this means for the whole economy generally. But I think, you know, WhatsApp could be slightly more progressive and make it free by using the PIC system. So I, I don't really get that. I imagine this is this is sort of an MVP, right? And they'll move towards PICs over time, I would imagine. Like mm. launch with what's easier to, to integrate now and then build features on top of that would be my guess. But I'm not I'm not 100% sure. I'm not going to go completely sinister, but I would suspect Visa and MasterCard have had a say. Yeah, I, yeah, I well. agree. You're probably yeah. right, Adam, for sure. Okay, so, <laughs> so we're going to move on to stories we didn't have time to cover, which is exactly that because we're coming to the end of the show and we just need to round up some stories from the week um, that still are great and deserve a shout out. So Adam, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Snoop, again, love Snoop, uh, partners with Accepti for hyper-personalized lending tools. So this was in Finextra. The combination of Snoop's proactive data-driven transaction model with Accepti, the UK's number one rated loan marketplace API and platform, will provide Snoop customers with access to tailored personal loan solutions. Using secure open banking data and advanced analytics, Snoop provides data-driven personalized insights, or uh, what they're called Snoops, um, to help customers find money-saving opportunities. The Snoop CEO, John Natalizia, Apologies, John, if I've just butchered your name, uh, said this. Our partnership with Accepti is all about creating the most intelligent personal loan matching service in the market. Accepti will help Snoop to match consumers with the right loan, tailored perfectly for their circumstances and eligibility. So, yeah, my analysis on this, I I use Snoop, a a phenomenon in my mind, which is the first kind of uh, smart PFM semi-bank. They're not obviously a bank. They're not licensed as a bank, but you can sort of class them in that in that mold and certainly in that ecosystem. But you know, is completely and utterly driven by open banking, and it's caught on really, really well. And I think you know, instead of starting really with the sort of the financey bits of what people look for, they've actually started with actually how can they help people save money, and they've used you know a combination of like rewards and hyper-personalized offers to improve your finances, as as, as Joe Schmo. And it's done unbelievably well. And this, I think, is just the next evolution of that, you know, going into lending, going into personalized lending. And good luck to them. Like, awesome business model uh, and really, really cool company. Agree. Love Snoop. Okay, the next story is Clubhouse partners with Stripe to let you send money directly to creators by tapping on their profile. So this is over on Business Insider. Clubhouse began allowing users to send money directly to creators on the platform thanks to a partnership with payments company Stripe. Users can donate money to creators via Clubhouse Payments, uh, which is like a new feature. Uh, But not all creators can receive payments just yet. So Clubhouse said it's launching with a small test group first. Creators will get all of the money a user sends, but users will be charged a card processing fee by Stripe. And Stripe CEO Patrick Collinson tweeted on Sunday, it's cool to see a new social platform focus first on the participant income rather than internalized monetization or advertising. Clubhouse said the payments tool is the first of many features that will allow creators to get paid directly via the app. So my thoughts on this is, 
I think it's really positive for people who are generally creative and own their own content and are delivering real value. But I wonder if it might sort of change the culture of Clubhouse generally and the environment going forward. I don't know if you guys have attended a Clubhouse event, but I, I was really surprised by the positive culture, actually. And it's, you know, very academic, very respectful, generous. Everyone's really open and welcoming. And I wonder if making it commoditized to an extent will make the speakers and participants judge, be sort of be judged more critically because then it's a production rather than an open conversation. So, but I think it's interesting that they're testing it regardless on a small subset and goes back to the previous theme around how this makes money and, you know, Clubhouse doesn't take any kind of commission for this in the future. So I'm imagining that larger attended events might come with a stage commission or some kind of production commission or something like that to, to make it pay for itself. Adam, back over to you. Yeah, so this was a, a story that was on Sky News, and that is that Stephen Jones, who ran UK Finance last year, or until last year, I should say, has joined One Banks as its vice chairman. The really interesting part is about what this what One Banks do. So the startup, which is piloting a shared branch kiosk in a co-op store near Falkirk in Scotland, plans to raise millions of pounds in Series A fundraising during the summer, as in the summer coming. Sources said the company would seek to develop partnerships with other supermarkets and retailers and transport hubs such as train stations in order to expand its presence once the concept has been proven. Mr. Jones is a former executive at Barclays and Santander UK, is among One Bank's early investors as well, and he described the concept as technologically advanced, socially and digitally inclusive, affordable and secure. I think this is super interesting. This is like, I think they've targeted areas where people uh, are struggling to get to bank branches because they're, you know, as a natural consequence of branch simplification that's been going on for since the dawn of time, but also obviously has been, you know, expedited because of the pandemic. They're targeting these areas where people are struggling to get to a branch. But I think the offering is really interesting because again, you know, we've talked about open banking quite a lot on this pod so far, but it is, you know, a proposition which is powered by open banking. So, you know, it doesn't matter who you bank with, you can go in there, you can get bank-like services and they'll, I'm assuming, at some point do a time with all the banks and try and possibly be, you know, cross-funded by the CMA9 or, you know, the CMA9 as we know it and maybe some others. I don't know. That's sort of, sort of bit business model speak. But I think it's a really, really, really interesting use case for how to solve this problem of people becoming disassociated and disattached from their banks physically, especially people who still, you know, rely on the branch network. And yeah, I'm I'm, I'm really interested to see how the, this one evolves, how much money they raise, what valuation that puts on it and what their plans are for, let's say, the next, you know, the, the next few years, because this is obviously, everyone's been wondering what to do with bank branches. Here's, here's, here's a potential option that actually m might might help the masses. Great, thank you. And we're moving on to our and finally story, which is two Coinbase employees wed by exchanging NFTs. So last month, Coinbase employees Rebecca Rose and Peter Katajinski got married in a traditional Jewish ceremony, choosing to swap NFTs in addition to exchanging traditional rings. Rose and Katajinski created their own digital NFT tokens named Tabat, Jewish for ring, that's a nice name, Inside the tokens, they stored an animation by artist Carl Johan uh, Hesselrot. I really apologize, Carl, if I butchered your name. Um, two circles rotating around each other, eventually coming together to form a single larger circle. 
Rose hinted that they may create a decentralized app to allow people to create their own NFT tokens for special events. I kind of love this. Emily, what were, you, what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I thought it was really inventive, actually. I mean, it's nice that they decided to celebrate their love this way, um, and especially with something as new as NFTs. I hope they actually you know, also got regular rings or or whatever they would they would prefer to wear, because I mean, I'm not too sure how well you can show off an NFT. But yeah, it's really inventive, so good on them. Adam, thoughts? Oh, well, I mean, I'm Jewish, so like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what I don't know what my rabbi would say about this. Interesting, interesting, and why not? Interesting, and why not? They probably did it reform rather than united, I would imagine, because you know the, the the ceremonies within a Jewish wedding is pretty strict in terms okay, of what you do, yeah. and the process is pretty strict. So um, I should imagine they've diversified from the norm. But um, yeah, why not? Like, yeah, why not? <laughs> I don't know what to I quite say. like the I like the idea of tokens though for special events. It's quite like it's quite nice. And then of course you could end up having things like token wallets of all of the precious moments in your life or you know, special events. That's quite cool, right? Keith, what, what do you reckon? I think non-fungible tokens are really interesting technology. But uh, yeah, and I'm I'm excited for, for this couple, but I wonder how this will age. You know, is this gonna be something you pull out and show your great grandchildren or your grandchildren? I don't know. I have my doubts, uh, but it certainly is an interesting use of NFTs. I'll put it that way. Well, I think Rebecca Rose would think that she definitely will show her grandchildren. I think she said a quote from her is uh, they want to share and document their love in the most permanent way they can. So at least we've got one advocate for the future of uh, NFTs. Yeah, there you go. Adam, last last thoughts on this one? I think you do really well pronouncing Peter Kashaginsky. That's my last, that's my last. Yeah, oh. I, I tried hard. I had to use every brain cell because there was a lot of letters in that word. There is, yeah, there's a lot of letters going on. No, but very cool. Good, good luck to them. Great. Good luck. Yep, indeedy. Great. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much to all of our wonderful, amazing guests. Where can people find out more about you, Keith? Sure. Thanks again for having me. You can find me on Twitter at KMGross, K-M-G-R-O-S-E, or at plaid.com. Super. Emily, where can people find more about you? You can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole, and you can read all my stuff on fnlondon.com. Brilliant. And Adam? I'm on LinkedIn, AdamD8 on Twitter and 11FS.com. Super, thank you. And as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I haven't posted anything for a long time, but I am going to try. Um, you say this every week, Mel. I know, I know. I don't believe I you. Really I don't am. believe you. I'm going to make it my project over the weekend to sort Twitter out. <laughs> it, it doesn't take much to post. Like you could, <laughs> you need a weekend, eh? Hey, listen. I know, but there's so much pressure now because there, there, uh, yeah, that's true. Everyone that knows that I'm hopeless, so there's a lot of pressure. Okay, great. So <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others find the show as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or you can also email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters and what comes next. 
Bite Size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.